Hi, everyone. This is Charting Queer Health, a podcast at the intersection of queer culture, healthcare, and research. On behalf of Howard Brown Health in Chicago, as always, I'm your host, Matt Lesky. I identify as a cis white gay man. I'm a Chicago resident, but most importantly, I have the incredible opportunity to sit down with various experts across our organization and across our community to learn from their expertise, amplify their stories and voices, and advance the conversation surrounding queer healthcare. Joining us today is Cease Hardacker. Cease, thanks for coming. Would you mind introducing yourself, your role here at Howard Brown, and your preferred pronouns? Sure thing, Matt. Uh, I'm Cease Hardacker. Mucho gusto a todos. Uh, I use she, her, or AIAS pronouns. Uh, I am a nurse by trade, a nurse at heart, and I am the director of education uh, here at Howard Brown. Gosh, I've been here 11 and a half years now. 11 and a half years. I think that's I mean, uh, aside from a few people, that's one of the longest ten years I've I've had of of, of guests I've uh, uh, interviewed. Um, also, a PSA for all of our listeners: uh, Cease and I are doing this via Zoom uh, because Cease's incredibly busy schedule. Uh, this is a little bit more convenient for both of us, so um, that that uh, might be the reason why it sounds a little bit different. But um, should be able to get all of our wonderful information in uh, regardless. So we're here to talk about MLHS, which um, it took me, I've been at Howard Brown close to a year and I've been hearing about MLHS for this entire time and it, it took me a while to fully understand the acronym. MLHS stands for Midwest LGBTQ Plus Healthcare Symposium. Is that, am I, did I nail that? You did, 100%. Okay, okay good. So C says your position as Director of Education, MLHS fits into that and we'll dive into what it all is. Um, a little bit later, but um, first, what does Director of Education do? What's your day-to-day like? Oh my gosh, this, this is the question you didn't have on my list, but I know <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I promise not to throw too many curveballs at <laughs> you. Okay. I better know the answer to what I do every day. Right, I uh, So uh, as the Director of the Department of Education, I, I oversee an amazing team. Um, we have uh, basically four areas uh, that we cover. Uh, the first one, obviously, is education, right? So we do uh, internal, we support internal education. We have something that uh, is akin to a grand rounds that we do uh, with different sessions every month uh, for providers, direct care, you know, direct patient care folks. And then uh, we work with uh, with HR on any projects that they um, that they have that they need our uh, our expertise or want to consult with us about that. Uh, the sexual harassment prevention training is an example of that. Um, we do a lot of external education. So we get requests from pick a, pick a thing, pick an agency, <laughs> pick a place, pick a school, pick a, you know, a topic. We get all of these requests and uh, my team and I coordinate putting together that external education. And, and more and more, we've been seeing requests for not just the basic LGBTQ 101, but we're seeing people come to us and say, hey, we recognize that our system is not welcoming to queer people uh, and we wanna do a culture shift, a system change. And so we spend time with organizations like that, teaching them everything. And so, uh, and everything really is a long list. It's uh, hours and hours of training with their entire staff. and. So we've been seeing more and more uh, requests like that. Um, we also do the symposium, which we're gonna talk about. And then the other arm, uh, there are two other things that we do. We manage the majority of internships and residencies that come through Howard Brown. Uh, you, I think people would really be shocked to know how many people 
are interested in working here, are interested in yeah. uh, supplementing their education. Um, so we manage all the internships and residencies. We have several that are kind of standing things, the primary care leadership program and the Shapin Fellowship in the summer. Um, there's all kinds of those that, that we manage. And then the last thing that uh, our team does is we um, have received a huge grant from the CDC via Chicago Department of Public Health to uh, establish a technical assistance program that was focused on COVID. Obviously, that's where mm -hmm. it came from. Um, and that team works uh, has worked and built a network with 25 plus community health centers, seven or eight hospitals around the city to make sure that all the information we gather about COVID uh, is being collected the same way, is being delivered to them the same way, so that all of that data that we hear all the time about what's going on with COVID is as accurate as we can get it. So uh, that's been a big job and that team has really been working hard the last couple of years. Yeah, so it, it sounds like you have your hands in in everything. And, and I love, that was something that struck me about Howard Brown when I first started is the, the the kind of status Howard Brown has as a thought leader um, and our how uniquely positioned we are to really set the tone when it comes to LGBTQ plus healthcare issues. The way you described it, it almost sounds like um, like a consultancy a little bit to like go into companies and and kind of analyze you know their their culture and their environment and kind of break it down for them about how to how to improve things. But it's also you know internal. How do we you know, talk about these issues and and keep this massive organization on the same page about, you know, the terms we use, the, you know, everything. So it is a massive job. Uh, and, you know, you're you're juggling a lot of balls in the air to, 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 to try to even be here on this call. So I really appreciate it. Um, let's let's dive into what MLHS is. Um, just, uh, I guess, give me, let's start with a brief Reader's Digest for, for people that don't know how these types of symposiums work. Sure, sure thing. So this is our eighth symposium. Uh, and more than anything, uh, at, its, at its core, it's a learning opportunity. So it's two days of amazing sessions that are, uh, that are, that, that build on our theme. This year's theme is mobilizing for health justice is a radical act. Uh, it's kind of always had the, we think this kind of education in and of itself is a radical act, right? Because it's so important. Um, uh, so all of our themes have something to do with that. Um, but this year, as we've done in past years, the, the content presented by subject matter, matter experts is arranged by track. We have several different tracks and our tracks this year uh, are gonna focus on health liberation, COVID-19, LGBTQ health and the new normal. That's a big area, obviously. Um, trans health and reproductive justice and behavioral mental health. All of those areas specifically um, address health disparities. Um, and so all the sessions are, are loosely grouped according to those tracks. Uh, and this is the structure that we've had uh, every year. Um, you know, we have keynotes and then we have uh, all these amazing sessions. So in essence, that's what the symposium is. Yeah. Um, it sounds like a like a smorgasbord uh, to like shoehorn that word in there. Uh, <laughs> like you can just kind of pick and choose what uh, topics suit the needs of you or your organization and kind of dive in and learn more about those. Um, 
this this whole world of of um, kind of like extracurricular education as it pertains to the healthcare field uh, is something I, I've I've no, not known about since before starting at Howard Brown. Granted, this is my first uh, position in the healthcare field, um, but the concept of you know going to medical school and being a practitioner and spending all those years and all that money, but then still being like, well, there's still more to learn. Like that that's kind of wild to me. Um, so I, I appreciate that Howard Brown's kind of uh, taking the lead on offering this to, to people that think they might need it. Um, has this always been put on by Howard Brown? Um, and then also is, are there other organizations across the country doing this? So uh, you're absolutely right. Um, you, I, I love the term that you used, extracurriculars, right? So in the medical field, we call it continuing education. And it is absolutely something uh, that people need to do. This conference is important for that reason, because most people in healthcare programs, no matter what that program is, nurses, physicians, occupational therapists, social workers, psychologists, they do have limited content that focuses on LGBTQ health, very different levels. But um, but they have so little, it, it, people were really, it's really shocking. So this is something that I know to be true because we've done research on this. Um, when I started about 11 years ago, the average number of hours spent on, uh, and we'll just say the giant umbrella of LGBTQ health topics, yeah. uh, averaged about two and a half year, uh, two and a half hours in a four year program. Fast forward 11 years, same research, same universities, the average is up to six. But the vast majority of all of that content focuses on um, HIV and uh, sexually, transmitted, sexually transmitted infections, which of course kind of makes sense. Um, but it's not, you know, it's not enough. Yeah. It's never been enough. And that's one of the things I think that um, a lot of people don't even really recognize because, you know, it, it's just a horrible omission and, and, uh, and people need to have what they've learned supplemented because it's just not enough and that's not acceptable. Yeah. Yeah. What are, what are some of like the tangible consequences of people not having that continuing education as regards to, to queer medicine or LGBTQ plus medicine? Well, imagine if somebody comes in for care and, um, you know, they identify the way you do or they identify the way I do as a, you know, as a older Latina dyke. Well, the older is not a choice, but uh, <laughs> it's not really, but it is part of my identity. Anyway, uh, goes into a provider and and uh, they're, immediately they're struck by uh, something in that environment, something in that space that tips them off that this might not be a safe place. So for me, safety is top of the line. It is the most important thing when it comes to healthcare because everything's built off of that. You build trust off of safety. You build uh, a willingness uh, to do and to work with providers to get you to a place of better health, you know, to, to solve the reason that you're there, right? That, yeah. to, to, to have that opportunity to work together. And that won't happen if you don't feel safe. So something as simple as an intake form, when you start to fill it out, if you don't have a, a gender option that's not just male or female, um, immediately that tells you that they don't see you. Or when you have to check a box and say you're married and they say, oh, 
and to me, this has actually happened to me. Uh, and they say, oh, um, what's your husband's name? And I go, well, her name is Tanya. And so, you know, those are things that we know happen over and over. And those are, you know, misgendering can be, you know, just crucial and traumatic to people. So those, you'd be shocked at the, also to know that those basic things are not taught. Yeah. Um, they're not taught, that people aren't even taught about how to introduce themselves with their pronouns or uh, how to talk to people um, in a way that makes them feel truly, truly welcome. And so much of the time, it's not because they don't want to. It's because they don't know how. And so one of the most important things that I tell, that we as our team tell people is, we understand that you don't know what you don't know. Right. You said there's a lot that people need to keep learning. But once you know you have this deficit, now it's your responsibility to get to to find what you need to supplement your knowledge, to supplement your skills. Because um, if you know that this is something that's lacking and you leave it that way, now it's your responsibility. Yeah. So now you are um, the person that is responsible for anything have accountable at that point. Yeah, I've. Ooh, you touched on a lot and it makes so much sense. And it's uh, we've talked about it a little bit in a, in a few other episodes, but um, I love that you said security is like, and, and safety is the, the top of the line need. And I, it strikes me of like that, like psych 101 turn Maslow's hierarchy of needs, where it's like, you have to feel safe before you can accomplish anything else on the list when you go into a doctor's office. So, you know, I, <clears throat> being from a small town, you know, I felt that reluctance to like come out and it didn't have any adverse healthcare effects, but it, it strikes me that, you know, if you were somebody of a queer identity and had a healthcare issue related to that and you didn't feel safe enough to disclose that information, you could potentially suffer like physically negative health outcomes from that lack of safety. Um, so those, those skills of, you know, um, knowing how to cater an intake form and knowing how to introduce yourself with pronouns and just those soft soft skills, so to speak, of, of creating a safe space uh, strike me as so important. Um, uh, I'm kind of interested in this concept of like hard skills versus soft skills, even in like, I did like marketing as a major in college and people always emphasize like, yeah, like, it, you know, you have the hard skills of like writing your press release or like all those like technical things in the medical world that would be, you know, finding a vein for an IV or, you know, <laughs> taking blood pressure, things like that. Um, yes. Those are those hard skills, but the soft skills are, you know, in a, a corporate world might be, you know, teamwork, collaboration, being able to voice an idea. In the medical world, it does look like being able to, you know, endear yourself to a patient and making sure that you are, you know, welcoming and things. And I've had experiences in the doctor's office on both sides of the spectrum where it's like, oh, this person could be my best friend or, you know, wow, they're really just robotic in the way that they, you know, ask these questions and things. Um, I, th I think I know the answer to the question I'm asking, but is it enough to have only the hard skills of medicine and how important are those people's skills? Um, and do our health outcomes like tangibly change when we treat a whole person as opposed to a set of symptoms? Because obviously it's nice to like have that personal touch, but is there like an actual physical ramification to those soft skills? 
So three questions at once. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry. I just, I threw that. I, when I, it's when okay. I, it's when lovely. I lay those questions out like that, it's sort of a pick your own adventure. You can kind of go wherever you want. Right, right, right. But they're all related. You're, you're absolutely right. It, it is never enough to simply have your core hard skills, right? So when I think of hard skills, it's exactly as you described. Can people do procedures? Do they know how to navigate the the electronic medical record? Do they know where to find all of their equipment, right? So yes, people need to have that. But people, what I truly believe is that people who work in healthcare are incredibly devoted and intelligent. They wouldn't choose these professions if they weren't. But the truth of the matter, hard skills are different from people skills or soft skills. And one of the things that drew me uh, to Howard Brown and that I, to this day, am so proud of that we do is that we really strive to use what is called a patient-centered care model. And by that, I mean, we focus on uh, using a trauma-informed care, understanding that the people who come to us have been through some stuff. You know, the research tells us that 80% of people who come into healthcare have some history of trauma in their life, in their world, and quite a lot of them, it's current and ongoing. We focus on um, racial and health equity. We use a harm reduction approach. And, and that is something that I have absolutely uh, seen as a profound approach when working with people. It means that we meet our patients and clients where they are. We work together to uncover their strengths to learn about the social determinants of health that influence and make up their world. And when we get the opportunity to build trust with people, they'll stay in, engaged in care better. They'll come back to us. We'll have a better chance over time uh, to get to know them. Like you said, right? They could be your best friend. Um, but having the ability to do that helps us to move people um, to their best health and wellness, right? It can be incremental, it can be baby steps, but if we're moving in that direction, uh, that's our goal, right? You know, uh, I always think that there's such an incredible power imbalance with healthcare and the people who come into healthcare. Um, the people that are in healthcare have education, they have knowledge, they have the ability to share resources with patients and clients who come to them and the clients come to us uh, in need they're afraid a lot of the time uh, that if they're if they're sick they want to know why and they're afraid of what they might find out um, they may like you said they may just have that anticipatory fear that uh, you know I was treated badly the last time I came I don't want that to happen again this time so uh, a lot of what we do, what we call our our six pillars you know, of our strategic plan has a lot to do with treating a whole person. One of our physicians, Dr. Green, says, you know, she's not a provider, she's a healer. And that, to me, there's a, those are very different approaches. And um, I think those are the things that are, like like we've been talking about, are really lacking in uh, in most healthcare programs. Yeah, I I love that you brought that all up because loyal listeners of the show will know uh, <laughs> we've talked about harm reduction and uh, we've interviewed Dr. Green before. And you know, I'm a facilitator of community healing. I love I love that title and the the approach that Howard Brown has on it. So 
I think it's it's pretty clear to to us and to everybody listening why this kind of healthcare is so important. What I'm curious about is, and I'm gonna this again is kind of not on the list of questions I gave you, but I'm tweaking one. Um, why hasn't this caught on? Because you've said that like, you know, LGBTQ plus issues, you know, you're at like six hours per, you know, four years of of learning, and obviously like the 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 numbers and the studies are there to prove that this is necessary. Why haven't medical schools caught on and said like, oh, we need to do more. We need to really, you know, balance out the skills when it comes to hard and soft skills and give these to our graduates. Why isn't that the case? You've asked me one of my favorite questions, so I don't <laughs> care that it's not on the list. Okay. Um, so the, the bottom line reason they don't do it is because they don't want to change their entire curriculum. And here's the and here's the reason why. So, and this might be taking us into the weeds that we don't need to be in. That's but, fine. But Sorry. every every healthcare program has a, a list of criteria that they have to um, that they have to achieve in order to be accredited as a medical school, a nursing school, a physical therapy school, whatever it might be. Uh, they have to meet those criteria in order for them to be accredited in order for them to be able to give people their degrees after they've earned them. In 2014, there's an amazing document, uh, and I'm not gonna remember the whole title, um, but it was um, something that was put together by healthcare providers uh, through the American Association of Medical Colleges. It, it was a, a, honestly a powerful document when it came out. It still is. And I recommend it to people all the time. It was essentially what they said was, we recognize that medical schools um, have done a really poor job in addressing healthcare for LGBTQIA people. And they said, they basically apologized and said, not just that we recognize it, but we recognize that this is an incredibly uh, harmful omission. And so what they did was they went through, it's 305 pages. Trust me, I have several coffee stand copies that I've read over and over and over because what it does is then every chapter breaks it down so that people can, uh, if people want to, that are in charge of those curriculum, they don't have to change everything, but they can inject different exercises. They can inject information here where it's really important. So there'll be this just incredibly important nugget that they'll drop in here and say, this is something that's very important. So something as simple as, they never had a simulation lab when I was uh, in nursing school, uh, but they have sim labs now. And so, you know, they develop these, uh, patients, right? These simulation patients and something as simple as make one of them queer, make one of them a dyke, make one of them, you know, an older gay person that's living with, you know, that's living with HIV. So uh, use, that's just one way. And, but I, like I said, it's 305 pages of different ways that people can infuse that content and make it um a part of everything, right? I, I have a little problem with things being set up as special and different because that keeps people on the margins. It keeps 
over there kind of thing. Uh, it others people. So I love their approach that it can be built into uh, an existing curriculum. And so it, it recognizes that you can't just change everything. We know that that's just not possible. So um, that's one way that that can happen. Uh, I will now you know, get my little soapbox out and stand on it. Uh, one thing that I've been trying to do uh, for nursing schools as a as a nurse, um, they have absolutely. So I, you know, when I told you earlier that you know it used to be two and a half hours, now at six hours in medical college, there's none in nursing school, zero. And for me, uh, it's shameful. Uh, I know that they're working on it now for years and years and years. It wasn't something that they explicitly said. It took quite a long while for them to say that, that we do not discriminate on the basis of and fill in all of those uh, all of those identities. They, um, but they were finally working on changing that accreditation criteria so that it can be built into programs. And so, but the way it happens now, is that I get an email from one of my colleagues at the nursing schools around town and they say, hey, can you come and talk to our students about trans health? Can you come and talk to our students about uh, how to be uh, culturally safe with LGBTQ people? Can you come and talk about, you know, fill in the blank? And so, um, and so that's what we do. You know, if we, we try to, um, over the years, we've tried to develop a revenue stream connected to our education, but there's some places that we go, we'll go, we'll, we'll try to get them to pay for it, but we'll go for free because they need it and we mm -hmm. know they need it and we want them to have it. So we really do uh, respond to that call. Uh, very, It's frequent. We, we have a lot of requests. Um, and this year, I've had more than any other year because they know more and more about us. They know more about my team and me. Um, and we've built that trust with the the schools in the community. So um, there are there are um, courses that we join regularly now, you know, year after year, semester after semester, so that we can bring them whatever they're looking for that year. We that's been really, uh, that's been one of my favorite things about this job is that we've built those relationships and that network so that people know, uh, and they actually look forward to us coming because they know how, what an impact it has had on students over the years. And yeah. that's something that I'm really proud of. Yeah, absolutely. And I, like I said before, the idea that Howard Brown serves people not only on a tangible, physical, like patient level, we also serve people that might not be, you know, don't have a queer identity, but they're just in nursing school and we can serve them that way by handing them education that could change people's lives down the road. I also love that you touched on the concept of, and this is something that transcends uh, like nursing school and it's just like the queer agenda in general of having like something separate and something like built in because <clears throat> when it comes to like learning about queer issues, obviously we'd prefer if it was just like a standard part of the curriculum in a lot of places, it's not at something separate, something special, but we also had that conversation when it comes to like pride or, you know, um, gathering spaces. Like, why does it have to be, you know, a gay bar? Can it just be a bar where everybody's welcome and, you know, gay people feel comfortable there? Um, that's kind of a, a, a stretch to apply this principle to the to those two concepts, but it is interesting that like, 
ideally, yes, we would rather have it all built in, um, but for some situations in some cases, and maybe for just right now, it has to be a standalone extracurricular, but we're going to work with it and we're going to, you know, push for, for better integration in the future. So um, I, I love that concept in that, you know, we're, we're still doing the work to, to go out and, uh, you know, arm all these different institutions and schools and, and students with this knowledge. So we've kind of talked broadly about um, why this education is needed, why it's, you know, not out there, what we're doing to kind of correct it. So that brings us to Howard Brown's era, um, education, research and advocacy. Um, Howard Brown is a long-running institution. How long has ERA itself been around um, in comparison to Howard Brown as a whole organization? So you know that Howard Brown was founded in 1974. Mm -hmm. um, ERA has only been a division for five years. We were just established in, uh, in 2017. And that was, uh, the decision was made to kind of uh, group us together because uh, the four departments that make up ERA, education, clinical research, social and behavioral research, uh, and advocacy, uh, these teams really all work together. So, you know, uh, data and research informs uh, knowledge and education, knowledge and education and data informs advocacy. So we have this really amazing synergy of the way that we work together. Um, I'm, I'm a huge fan of all of these departments. Um, they're amazing, super highly skilled people who work with the patients. Um, we basically, our goal is to kind of synthesize all that information, um, and to get that out, right? So it's, it's our vision to disseminate high quality community informed best practices. So that's part of the, if you go to the website and look at the error page, that's what it's gonna say under our vision. Uh, and all of that knowledge has come through our experience. You, so much of what we learned is from our patients. So much of what I, we learn is from each other. It's one of the most important aspects of what, what we do. Um, we work in tandem to build these programs uh, in, in LGBTQ healthcare that are affirming, culturally safe, uh, for everybody that comes to Howard Brown. I mean, that's the other thing that when people say this is a special thing or this is a, you know, something that's separate, one of the things that one of our uh, past um, clinical directors used to say is, um, I'm not teaching you skills that are special for LGBTQ people. I'm teaching you skills that are universal for all your patients. So you introduce yourself with your pronouns to everybody. You ask everybody about their sexual orientation and gender identity because everybody has one. You do though you you put these practices in place um, so that you don't have to try to make a decision about who you ask and who you don't ask. Just ask everybody. Just make this part of what you do on a daily basis. And you're going to be golden. And if you end up having some teaching opportunities with some patients that you have, that's even better. If you end up having the incredibly small percentage of people who get offended when you ask those questions, um, even then it's something that you can very easily sidestep and say, you know, I ask everybody these questions. If this doesn't apply to you, we'll just move on. It's super simple to do it. But so many people are 
they're so afraid. They're frightened that people are going to get angry with them. They're concerned that they're going to lose a patient, that they're never going to come back. And, uh, and research tells us that uh, the thing that people are most reluctant to share with their with the healthcare system is how much money they make. That's the top thing. Really? They'll, they'll answer questions about, um, I mean, think about, think about the things that people ask, right? They ask you how much you, how much you weigh, right? That's a very sensitive question. They ask people how much they smoke. They ask them what they smoke. They ask them if they drink. They ask them how much they drink. We come right out and ask people if they use uh, illicit drugs. We ask them if they use illegal drugs. Just come right out and ask. And in the last 10 years, a question that is incredibly important, and I'm glad we ask it, is that we ask people if they feel safe in their homes. Like, so those questions are incredibly invasive. Asking someone who uh, they're attracted to sexually seems kind of down the list, right? And how do you identify your gender? So I make sure that I'm being respectful of that that seems to be kind of down the list. So um, I'm always just amazed when people say, are people going to be offended at this? And, and my response is always, not if you normalize it, not if you have the skill and use this and use this with everybody. It was my dog. Oh, cute. <laughs> like, what's that flappy sound? It's my dog. Um, yeah, we spend so much time uh, really just trying to reassure people that what we're teaching them is something that they can use for everybody. Yeah, I love that point. And that's something I want to make sure is clear that like, you know, you may think, you know, these LGBTQ plus issues aren't something that you're going to use, et cetera, et cetera. But the types of things that we're trying to get across through ERA will really just make you a better practitioner overall. Uh, because those those skills of being in tune with the patient, making them feel welcome, that applies to not just um, queer identities, but ide any identity that's been historically marginalized by the healthcare system. Um, you know, anybody of any background will feel more welcome through that. So I love I love that um, that emphasis on that. Um, so let me formulate my thoughts. So era. Uh, it was kind of created recent, recently, relatively recently, uh, to kind of group all those departments together to have a central place to showcase the knowledge that we're gaining every day in our practices, things that we've come across that we found work, um, and also our, you know, official research, uh, the things that we're doing, um, drug trials, all that stuff. So um, it strikes me, so MLHS is kind of the science fair, so to speak, for, for all, for all of that is that maybe that's a, um, a patronizing way to put it but it helps me uh contextualize that way as like this is what we're uh, or a, a lot of people in our department because it's not just mlhs is not just howard brown staff right it's people presenting at least it's professionals from yeah. all over right okay absolutely um, so it's it's what we've been learning this you know recently and that's what we're showcasing at mlhs so what what can we expect uh this year well, you're absolutely right. You know, we This is a tremendous resource for our own staff, but we do have a lot of, uh, of researchers and thought leaders, content experts that are coming to us. Um, we have phenomenal keynote speakers this year. Um, they're not 
national experts in their field. So we're going to have um, someone who focuses on trans health, another person who focuses on working with uh, LGBTQ youth, another person whose entire uh, career has been focused on public health, uh, another person who focuses on, on reproductive justice. So we're so fortunate to have them this year. Um, I don't know if people will recognize their names, but they might. Um, Alette is going to talk about trans health. Kristen Ekstrand about LGBTQ youth. Jesus Ramirez Valles is going to talk uh, about the impact of COVID um, and monkeypox, and the you know kind of the view from our perspective, from the LGBTQ perspective. Um, and Dezan Dixon Diallo, she's the founder of uh, of Sister Love, which is an amazing organization focused on uh, reproductive justice. She's going to be with us. So we work really hard to, you know, bring people in who are focused on you know, the topics and themes of the conference. We also we feel really lucky that we're going to have a, a special screening of a documentary. Uh, called the Lavender Scare, which is a, it's just it's truly heartbreaking, but ultimately it's an uplifting story of a person who lived through that horrible time in the 1950s when queer people were threatened uh, and persecuted for their sexual orientation, people that worked in the government. So um, that's going to be an amazing opportunity. One of the things that has always that is challenging for us because now our the last this will be our third virtual conference. Um, is that we miss out on those in-person networking opportunities, right? That that time you can pull somebody aside and, and have a chat, you know, somebody that you know or that you haven't seen for a while. Um, so we've worked really hard to build uh, different online networking opportunities. So we have these cute things that are called uh, spill the tea sessions. So in between each uh, each session, there's like a little 15 minute break. Uh, and our fabulous host, uh, Marissa Miller, who actually used to work at Howard Brown years ago, um, hosts those sessions. It's like a, just a real short little uh, conversation with somebody um, talking about what they do at Howard Brown and you know people having the opportunity to chat with them. Those are always really fun. Uh, and of course, Marissa will host our meet and greet at the end of each day. And, uh, and those are sponsored by the American Medical Association and University of Chicago. So, you know, we have so many supporters uh, around us from around around the country. So uh, we added this year something called roundtables, which are kind of like just small little discussions. Um, and we didn't know how that was going to go, but we got eight people who were, you know, eight groups that really were excited about doing that. I think those are going to be really, uh, really engaging. We've got like 32 other sessions that are going to be wow. ongoing. And, and I, it's the smorgasbord of LGBTQ education, to use your language. So um, it's really some amazing stuff. We're going to be talking about bi health, trans health, uh, just amazing. Um, what's the, there's one that's uh, roundtable called when queers work with queers. I'm just pulling that out of the hat because that sounds really fun yeah. uh, and really interesting. And uh, I know that there's going to be a session on uh, compassionate approaches to body size, to nutrition. Mm -hmm. That is going to be super exciting. Um, of course, there'll be things on monkeypox, HIV, all those topics that still remain so incredibly important to us. Um, but yeah, you know, I get to, uh, we just posted the schedule not too long ago on our website. So if folks are interested in seeing what all the, what all the different ones are, they're, they're, please go look because 
uh, it's really going to be exciting. And and you're right. If if people need the chance to decide which ones they're they're gonna uh, they're gonna join, uh, that'll be good to take some time to do that. But everything's new and different compared to the content we've seen in years past. It's always exciting for us when the abstract submissions come in and we get to see what what people are really proud of uh, yeah. and want to share about their work. I love that. How can, um, if people are curious to, uh, and they want to tune in, how can they uh, sign up? Uh, is there a fee? If there is a fee and they're worried about uh, affording it, is there like scholarships or is there a way that they can like plead with whatever organization they're a part of to like let them join? How does that all work? So uh, Howard Brown, we have our own unique opportunities for everybody that works here. Um, Registration is uh, is on the website, um, but if people have a hardship, we have a scholarship they can apply for. Uh, you know, if they just flat out can't afford it, they can always email us. We work really hard to make accommodations for people because we want we want people to come. So we work really hard to make uh, to make the conference you know a low threshold, right, so that it's easy for people uh, for people to attend. Um, for Howard Brown folks, they just need to make sure they have, you know, the, they've okayed it with their supervisor and um, and then they can register. Awesome. Um, yeah, uh, from a quick Google, it seems like the, the quickest way if people are interested in signing up, um, you can just Google MLHS Symposium. Uh, the first link is for our um, uh, era. So it kind of goes into what we've talked about on this episode. And then the second link uh, is the event sign up. So um, there you go. Pretty... Super easy, howardbrown.org backslash MLHS. We'll take Perfect. you right, we'll take you right to the homepage. Cool. Yeah. Um, so definitely encourage anybody who's listening and in, intrigued to to sign up. I know I'll be there. Um a few questions to kind of round out this uh bigger thinking um in in this episode in general. Um does this work ever end? Uh that's kind of a a simple question to like a, a simple way to phrase a big question of that like we went over why this type of you know information and learning is necessary because of deficits of you know in our institution and you know institutional racism and homophobia and everything like that do does will society ever get to a point where we don't have to educate people on these issues and it is just commonplace uh how far away are we from that is that a pipe dream is it you know what is there is there an uh, you know an end to this ever? Maybe that's a dumb question, but no, no, it's a really good question because the answer is kind of sad. Um, does this work ever end? Probably not in my lifetime. Maybe in yours. I don't know. Um, uh, I joke with my friends that I'll never be out of a job, mostly because there's such a great need, right? I don't see an end. Um, uh, and that's the thing that's not funny, right? Large health institutions and systems are inherently oppressive to people who've been historically excluded from those privileges and benefits that our country uh, has to offer. So we have to continue to provide education uh, to folks who seek it out and to folks who don't, folks who just need it. Um, and, and that's what we really hope that the, the symposium helps to supply, you know, there are lots of other conferences around the U.S. that focus on LGBTQ health. Uh, ours, we really pride ourselves on, you know, we're small but mighty. We're, uh, the thing that's unique about us, I think, is that we, uh, because we have that community-informed focus, 
Uh, I think that's something that that makes us stand out. Um, but the symposium has evolved, you know, over the years. Uh, we changed the theme and the tracks every year to so that it, um, so they're topical, right? It's focusing on the health issues, the concerns that kind of rise to the top, things that are more urgent for us to pay attention to. Um, that said, our small conference has grown every year, which is something that we're really proud of. Uh, and we've had to we've had to pivot and change some things uh, about the symposium every year. We uh, we've had to change locations, we've changed formats. We uh, one year we even had to change a location within a week of the conference actually starting, and that was crazy. <laughs> um, but and I said earlier, the the last several years we've had to learn how to present a virtual conference. So I would say our team is incredibly adaptable, um, but we're also very determined to make sure that you know the event go, comes off without a hitch and that people uh, can navigate everything easily. They can join. They get. They can hop into any session that they want to. So. I mean, my hope is that the symposium will be here for years to come. I would be incredibly proud to have that be part of the, the legacy that I leave behind as part of the Department of Education. So um, I would love to say, oh, yeah, yeah, eh, this will be done in 10 years. I used to say that when I started, that everybody will be asking sexual orientation and gender identity questions in the next five years. Well, it's 11 years, and I'm still... If we're still teaching people about how we're to chipping do away at it yeah it's simple simple thing so yeah well it this is a, a feel-good episode for me because it's incredibly um encouraging to know that we have era as part of howard brown really doing this work every day uh not only to educate people but to advocate for change especially given you know scary political climates recently um you know this this work is um as important as it ever was if not more uh, so I'm 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 so glad that Howard Brown really you know uh, rises to the to the challenge when it comes to equipping our society with the the knowledge it needs to to make patients feel feel welcome and safe in their healthcare environments. So as we wrap this up, Cease, any final thoughts, take home lessons, um, moral to the stories from from this episode as regards to MLHS. Um, queer healthcare education, any any of the above, anything that you want to make sure people take out of this episode? Well, I'm glad you said this was a feel-good episode because <laughs> uh, the work that we do sometimes can be really hard. You know, we go to places where people uh, don't want to hear what we have to say and are even, you know, resistant or reluctant, whatever the case may be. But um, I guess the thing that I would want to leave, leave folks with is uh, I really see this, the work that we do as an opportunity, right? We're, we're, we're contributing to the greater good. And I uh, I always hope that the work that we do uh, is inspirational, that people understand that we, the Department of Education at Oliveira is here to support everybody across the organization, right? We're not just some, you know, insular little group of people. Um, I have people that reach out to me all the time and say, hey, do you have a resource for this? Or, hey, do you have some slides I can borrow for that? Um, and we are always ready to respond uh, right away. So um, the work that people do here is, uh, it is powerful. It has an impact in people's lives. Um, you know, and even when 
people are burned out and people are, uh, you know, work so, so hard to provide the care that we do. Um, you know, I, they need to be uh, lifted up because this is, it is hard work, but it's so important. And um, I'm so proud of the people that work here that are, that are doing that every day. Yeah. Maybe me saying it's a, a feel good episode is, um, I, I'm probably only able to say that because I, haven't i'm not in your shoes and i don't you know experience those those kind of uh you know pushback or people who feel like they met needed all, all that hood stuff that comes along with it so um it's feel good for me but i do you know completely acknowledge that it is some of the most challenging work we have here at howard brown so i i want to give a, a huge thanks to to your team to Aaron in general for you especially coming on the show um educating us all it's it's a, a huge blessing I'm, I'm really grateful for it so um, yeah, I think I think what you said rounds out the episode perfectly. If people are interested uh, in MLHS, I'm gonna put the links in the description of the episode so they can sign up. Uh, tune into all those uh, awesome sessions that we described earlier in the episode. Um, so yeah, I, uh, thank you so much, Cease, for your time. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Matt. I'm glad we could finally get everything organized so we could do this. Yeah, yeah. And that has been our episode on the Midwest LGBTQ Plus Healthcare Symposium. If you're interested in more information, you can visit the link in the description of this episode. Thanks for listening.